Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Now it is my pleasure to introduce someone that a lot of you already know about because Skylight Books is a really big fan uh, of David Graeber. A lot of you are here because Charles, our book buyer, uh, grabbed you at one point in time and steered you to a copy of Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology or another work. Um, or you saw the copies of Debt that I plastered all over the store in the fall. Um, and I think I actually get, I was excited to realize I think direct action and ethnography is actually one of the first books that I bought at Skylight when I visited LA a couple years ago, so um, it's a, a, a nice tie-in. Um, but he's well-known for lots of other reasons. Uh, in the fall, was one of the folks who helped kick off the Occupy Wall Street movement. I know a lot of you are here for that. Um, but also uh, an anthropologist, a theorist of ideas about value, um, currently a reader at Goldsmith College in London doing work there, um, guy with a lot of ideas, uh, and he's here to uh, talk with you about them. So I'd like to introduce David Graeber. not going to work, is it? Ah, wow. Thanks so much for, for having me. Um, I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about how I came to write this book, um, which is an odd story. Um, it's part of a kind of long, ongoing well, series of efforts to try to figure out what the role of an intellectual should be in relation to new forms of social movement that we've, we've had nowadays, um, or that I was first introduced to around 2000, um, when I got involved in the global justice movement. And I should, I should preface that saying I came to political engagement surprisingly late. Um, I actually read somewhere the other day that um, I have been an anarchist since I was 16. Um, I guess that must be true. I, <laughs> told that to somebody sometime. Um, but um, yeah, but it was very, in a very theoretical sense. I'm, the way I always put it, um, my, my, my father fought in Spain. I come from a political family. Uh, my father was in the um, Abraham Lincoln Battalion. Uh, well, actually, he was an ambulance driver. So, um, but he's with the internationals. Uh, he was posted in Barcelona during the war. Um, I should explain that he had me rather late in life. But um, he was posted in Barcelona, and, and during the 30s, um, 36, 37, when he was there, Barcelona was essentially run on anarchist principles, um, which has a really interesting historical experiment in all sorts of different ways. Um, for one thing, they discovered that the people who largely took over the functions of government when they got rid of the government was, was the... Um, 
uh, telephone operators, um, the telephone operators union. You know, people would call up and ask to talk to the government, and the operator would say, "No, I'm sorry, there is no government." Um, <laughs> they'd say, "Well, can you solve this problem?" They'd have to do it, um, and um, <laughs> but um, um, and and according to my father, actually, he always felt that that what what he really learned from Barcelona was that. Um, he said it was one of the great historical experiments in a way, because what they managed to determine in Barcelona in the 36 was that uh, white-collar workers don't really do anything, uh, because you know their basic mode of economic reform was to file, fire all white-collar workers and just carry on without them, and, and it really didn't make any difference. Um, so um, those guys basically exist to make other people feel bad about themselves, but they don't really do much else. And um, so, so you know, I learned all this, and 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 it had an influence on me in that. Okay, the way I always put it is that um, most people don't think anarchism is a bad idea. You know, they think it's insane. I mean, um, you know, if you ask the average person, they'll say, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it would be great. No police, no prisons, everybody's nice to each other, we all cooperate. Dream on, you know. Um, and in fact, my father had been in a place where, oh, I mean, he was with the internationals and they were brought in, you know, through um, the Third International, which was Stalinist. I mean, they didn't know that at the time. Uh, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, they were heavily propagandized against the anarchists, but, but he was, you know, saw what was going on, he had a lot of anarchist friends, he felt it was a you know, legitimate experiment, um, eventually came to really take their side on most issues. Um, but oh, he didn't think anarchism was crazy, that's the point, he knew it, it could work. And if you don't think it's crazy, well there's really very little reason not to be an anarchist. Um, so I figured, alright, I'm an anarchist, but um, it didn't really mean much. Um, Occasionally, I did try to get involved in, um, you know, sort of libertarian, socialist, left-wing politics. I'd show up at um, different groups, and maybe I just had bad luck, or maybe it was a period in the 80s. There wasn't a lot going on. Um, I just remember being immediately turned off by, by what they passed for anarchist groups, at least that I saw were largely these sort of accumulations of, of individuals who acted like they were sectarian parties made up of just one person, you know, and just yelled at each other all the time. I would leave. Um, so, so, I became an anthropologist, um, went to University of Chicago, I ended up going to Madagascar to do my field work, and um, I guess I should have known something was going on because I kind of, what drew me to Madagascar was my advisor, Marshall Solins, who suggested I go there. He said, I, th I think your mind works like that. Uh, um, <laughs> still have no idea what he meant by this. Uh, but, but um, I, I, you know, I, I, I read a bunch of fairy tales and folk tales from Madagascar, and I am. Um, was immediately, I just thought they were great. Um, the sort of epic cycle of Madagascar involves um, this young guy who, who decides he wasn't created by God. And um, he wants God to acknowledge this. So there's all these magical battles between him and God. Um, so, you know, they're, they're kind of subversive there. Um, it turns out largely because I think Madagascar is mainly made up of two different populations of escaped slaves, one from Africa, one from Indonesia, kind of men. Um, 
created this rebel culture. But I, uh, as I say, I didn't know this, and I wandered into Madagascar only to actually be, you know, just as my father you know, sort of walked into a place where the government had been overthrown, I did too. But um, it took me six months to figure it out uh, because nobody wanted to admit it. You know, everybody was like, what government? Yeah, there's government. I mean, <laughs> there's offices down there. There's people working in the offices, you know. Um, and it was true, there were, there were people typing things and registering things and I later discovered that they weren't being paid and, and they actually had to buy their own paper, you know, because the government really wasn't supplying anything, they were just kind of pretending. Um, but um, basically what, what, what seems to have happened was that um, people in Madagascar in general, they're sort of masters of, particularly rural people, masters of passive resistance. I mean, they've got this down to an art that we could not imagine. The layer on layer and layer of the thing. Um, to the, so sort of the first layer, the sort of, for your first response, you know, you're living in the countryside, some guy shows up and, and tells you to do all sorts of things you don't want to do. Um, first response is be really nice to them, ask intelligent questions, give them coffee. Um, and then when they go away, Pretend the whole thing never happened. <laughs> what? What guy? No. <laughs> there was nobody here on Tuesday. What are you talking about? Um, you know, so, so this is like stage one, and there's like 37 steps. Um, and, um, you know, it was, it was difficult under, under the French colonial regime, but suddenly it had become much easier because the, gov the government was running out of money. They couldn't really afford to keep up um, the police in the countryside anyway since they, nobody was paying taxes. Um, so you had this sort of shadow government, everybody pretending there was a government, even because they made it as easy as possible for the people who are supposed to be the government to just play along. You know, we'll, we'll be incredibly respectful to you and uh, it, as long as you don't try to exercise your authority in any way. But if you do, we'll figure out thousands of subtle ways to make your life a living hell. So, so people were playing along. Um, I was fooled and, 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 and <laughs> the only way I really figured out what was going on was, um, I guess there's this guy named Henri, I guess in a place, this is a town by the way, it's like an hour out of the capital, it's a, a town of about, then about 10,000, 12,000 people. Um, and the surrounding countryside is where I was working, called Arivani Mom. Um, and in Arivani Mom, there was this one guy who was kind of the town bully. He was this really big guy. He was either insane or pretended to be insane. Opinions were divided on that. Um, and um, he, you know, he would like steal things, beat people up, guilt, guilt, guilty of multiple, you know, cases of sexual assault, uh, is bad news. Um, and people decided, okay, we've got to do something about this guy. Um, but apparently there is a principle in Madagascar that if you want to lynch someone, you have to get their parents' permission first. <laughs> if you think about it, you know, it's a pretty, pretty much guarantees it's not going to happen very often. <laughs> um, and if it does, it's probably a pretty good reason. Um, so, you know, after about three times, you know, basically it's a way of getting your, your dad or mom to be able to say, like, look, kid, you really better clean up your act. I don't know how long I could front for you here. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, after a while, um, his father said, okay, whatever, you know, do what you have to do. Um, sort of a Frankenstein scenario, they came after him, agricultural implements, and um, he was wounded, ran into the local Catholic church and demanded sanctuary, claiming he was persecuted because he was mentally ill. And um, the priest said, okay, drove him off to an insane asylum where they kicked him out a few days later for beating up the other patients, but, but, but he didn't come back, so it, it kind of worked. Um, 
But I was hearing the story, and you know, for a while, I was like, okay. And it suddenly occurred to me. I asked my friends, wait a minute. There's like a police station, you know, like two blocks away from here. Um, and she was like, yeah, but, you know, have you seen Henri? He's enormous. <laughs> I don't want to fight him. <laughs> it's like, you know, they're, they're cops. They have guns. And it's like, well, they're not going to shoot him. Um, so it seemed like police are there to keep the highway open and fight bandits. And um, that's pretty much all they do. They don't go off the paved road. Um, and even in town, you know. There's, they have a limited purview. So, so I realized that, there's, you know, I was actually living in a sort of anarchist society. Um, I go back to um, go back to Chicago. I, I write my dissertation. I get a job at Yale. Um, one day I, I'm walking out of class and I see a newspaper headline saying martial law declared in Seattle. And like most people in America, I said, huh? You know, nobody had any warning about this. Um, did some quick research, discovered that the social movement that I'd always sort of wished would exist, but didn't, had actually formed when I wasn't paying attention. And, um, you know, so I sort of was like, okay, where do I join? Um, showed up at the Direct Action Network meetings in New York, quickly got involved, and, um, and, now, the big thing in the Direct Action Network was consensus process, which was new to all of us. Uh, a sort of exciting new method of, of decision making and learning facilitation trainings and uh, doing all this sort of thing was an eye opener to me in in two really profound ways that sort of set me off on this intellectual problem I've been pursuing ever since. And one of those was one, one rather minor shock was the realization that that's what people had been doing in Madagascar that I hadn't even been completely aware of. I mean, I was aware that people used consensus to make decisions um, in this sort of free zone. I call, ended up calling it a provisional autonomous zone outside of the state. Um, but the thing is, like, they, they were really good at it. You know, these guys have been doing this for a thousand years. Everybody learns it when they're growing up. This is how decisions are made. So they don't have to spell it out or talk about it. Um, and it was, you know, we were terrible. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, because, you know, we were Americans. We, we, we go around the world claiming we're the most democratic society on earth. But, like, how often have any of us actually sat down in a group of people and made a democratic decision? Like, never. Maybe when you're ordering pizza or something like that. Um, we had no idea what we were doing. We had to learn it all from scratch, spell it all out. And as a result, you know, um, I suddenly understood all these things that I'd actually seen back in Madagascar that just like floated right by me at the time. I was like, oh, that guy, that's what that guy was doing, he was blocking. Okay. Um, Actually, they take block to a whole different level. And in, in Madagascar, there's like the existential block. You can like suddenly just get up and say, wait, I don't agree. And everybody's like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And I remember witnessing this. It's like nobody asked them to agree to anything. What's, what's, going, <laughs> what's going on? This is a sort of way of saying something is terribly wrong. I block everything. <laughs> everybody has to scramble and figure out like how to make him happy. Um, but. Um, all right, so, so I, retrospectively I understood that, you know, these guys have been doing this for ages. They were much better than us, and we were just slowly trying to figure out um, how to do this. But I also, one of the ways we, we, we were doing it was, you know, it was always good to have a diametrical opposite against which you can define yourself. Um, so for us, that was people like the Direct Action Network, basically what I call small A anarchist groups. They operated on anarchist principles, but, um, you know, your ideology is your own business. Um, what we, um, I guess what we really de defined ourselves against were these 
you know, imagine the sort of classic sectarian Trotskyist or Maoist group. I won't mention any names, but um, you know, those guys, there's like 13 people in them, but they're a political party that's going to seize political power, and uh, they have to have a position on all global issues, and um, they sell newspapers, those guys. Um, and, you know, but they always have an intellectual leader who sort of defines reality for you. And um, if you don't agree, you get cut off, and, you know, the definition of reality is much more important than internal process, which they hardly think about. Um, so we wanted to be the opposite of that. We were about radical heterogeneity. You, know, you shouldn't even try to move people over to your point of view. Rather, democracy is sort of like problem solving. So if you all have incommensurable perspectives, it actually helps. Uh, because you know, who would better solve a problem of 20 clones or 20 people of a different point of view? Um, so, so if you know, that was shocking only because you know I started like doing this you know when you're in anthropology you kind of can't help yourself you start doing ethnography um, you know, you're trained to do it and you're sitting in the meeting taking notes because everybody's taking notes and suddenly you realize you're doing little charts and diagrams and mapping out what kind of shoes people are wearing and um, it started happening and, and so I started you know observing this um, uh, it, an ethnography of sectarianness. This is and how we were in trying to invert that. Um, I even actually ended up making a list at one point of um, how to make a sectarian argument. There were three principles, if I remember correctly. Um, number one is okay. You're listening to somebody else talking. Um, and there's two ways to interpret something they say, an argument they're making, one of which gives them some credit for common sense. <laughs> Don't choose that one. Okay, so that's principle one. Uh, number two is um, make up a list of 27 ways to be wrong. Then listen to other people only long enough to figure out which category of wrongness to plug them into. <laughs> then explain to them what they think. You know, so it's like, oh, you're a cooperativist. You think. Um, you know, guys like that, right? And uh, number three is, you know, how to turn a sort of intellect minor intellectual difference into a vast moral flaw. Um, so, oh, you disagree with my interpretation of Bartleby the, the Scrivener. Obviously, you are a racist. Yeah, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, okay, so, but the horrible thing was like, you know, I, you know, this is the way that annoying Trotskyists argue and so forth and so on, uh, but, but it's also the way I was trained to argue at University of Chicago and I realized that actually, you know, academic practice is really not that different. Um, there is a, a structural analogy, analogy, especially to, you know, Marxist groups, and you know, I don't want to put down Marxism as a whole, but like, there, it does have a certain affinity to, to um, the academy. I mean, Marx did have a PhD. Um, you know, each group is formed around an intellectual leader, whereas anarchist groups tend to be, you know, it's, anarchists don't say, you know, like, you know, I'm a Melitestian and you're a Kropotkinite, so I hate you. And they might say, I'm a syndicalist and you're a platformist, so I hate you. But it's not about, like, the thought of some guy. Um, so, so the question then becomes, well, if you're not going to become the intellectual leader and lay down your analysis of reality, which will bring people to the appropriate level of consciousness and all that kind of vanguard of stuff, well, what do you do? I mean, what would an actual intellectual practice, which would be more in conformity to this, you know, new form of, well, to us new, form of political practice um, actually be like? And I've been tr struggling with this question in a million different ways ever since. I don't know if I come up with a solution. Um, well, maybe in the spirit of rad radical heterogeneity, then, you know, there isn't one solution. Um, 
probably true. Uh, but some of the solutions I have attempted, you know, I wrote a book, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. I, I wrote an ethnography of direct action, which I thought using ethnographic techniques would actually help disseminate the sort of core ideas that people are not entirely aware of and what they do. Um, I wrote a number of different things. Um, but the debt book is actually in there, but it's kind of a weird one. Because the book, I ended up becoming fascinated on in debt, with debt. Uh, I became fascinated with debt largely because I wanted to understand the strange moral power. It's like more of a know your enemy kind of book. Um, the strange moral power that the concept of debt has over people. That it seems to be able to justify things that you could never justify under any other circumstances. Um, and that's why I started the book the way I do, uh, with this conversation I have in at, had at Westminster Abbey. Um, I won't even begin to explain how I ended up actually, actually living in Westminster Abbey for a week, month and a half. It was very weird. Um, they, they give the priests these really big apartments and they don't pay them very much, so they rent rooms. You can actually get a room in Westminster Abbey. Um, so I, here I was, had this garden party at Westminster Abbey, and the priest is very nice, um, but he's um, introducing me to everyone, but he's very, you know, sort of gracious person, except he has this incredibly annoying habit of, of bringing me to people and saying, hello, I'd like you to meet David Graeber. He's an anarchist. Uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, that kind of limits possibilities for future conversation. Um, anyway, so um, um, just as I was wondering whether to remonstrate with him about this habit, he, he, he brings me up to this, this young woman who's an activist. He says, is always a person you really like. Um, she's also an activist. She's involved in all these community campaigns. She's a lawyer. Um, so I say, okay, and I'm talking to her, you know, sort of, what do you do, what do I do? We're chatting, nice person. Um, tells me about her work, asks about mine. I'm talking about global justice movement, campaigns against the IMF, and particular structural adjustment policies. I tell some stories about Madagascar. Because, you know, IMF structural adjustment policies had deeply ambivalent effects on Madagascar. Some of them were actually good, but completely by accident. That is to say, that's kind of why the government was willing to, like, give up on the police. Uh, because you know, usually when they cut the budget, the police is the last thing they cut. But in Madagascar, to their credit, I must say, you know, they just basically took the police out of rural areas and said, "You guys know how to govern yourselves anyway, and we're not getting any taxes from you." So what the hell? Um, but um, so that was good. Uh, but but um, they also got rid of things like mosquito eradication programs because they just, you know, these God forbid, Citibank could take a you know one percent on their interest rate haircut on loans that represent 0.001% of their portfolio, um, be, you know, rather let us many, many people die, um, which is in fact what happens when you get rid of mosquito eradication programs. Um, there had been one thir for 30 years, at least, no, like 50 years, um, in the highlands of Madagascar. They couldn't afford to keep it up um, because of the IMF budget cuts. Larry returned, everybody had lost their immunity. This is like a year before I shut up. Um, there was an epidemic. I think 10,000 people died, 5,000 of whom were children. Um, and um, when I was telling the story, she was, well, that's terrible. What were you, you know, actually proposing to do about this kind of thing? 
so I said, well, you know, drop the debt. I was involved. Well, we supported Jubilee 2000. I wasn't actually in Jubilee 2000, but, you know, we worked with them. Um, this group that said, well, you know, we just cancel third world debt. And she looked at me and was like, but wait, they borrowed the money, right? I mean, I mean, surely you have to pay your debts. And I was like, oh, one of those conversations, right? Um, because, you know, I mean, we've all had them. <laughs> but, you know, I thought this was a friend. I mean, she was. She was a nice person. It's just like, all right. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, which of the 27 different <laughs> <laughs> What do I do first? I didn't really borrow the money. It was all in a Swiss bank account. Somebody stole it. I mean, do you talk about the interest? You know, actually, they paid back the money 20, you know, 12 times, but through the miracle of compounded interest rates. And, you know, it'll take another 400 years to pay it. Um, you know, which one do you use? Um, I actually ended up going for the economic one. Uh, that seemed like it might be the most powerful. The economic one is, is, is actually surprising people don't use it more. Um, according to economic theory, um, Profit is your reward for taking risk. If you're not taking a risk, why are you getting the profit? Um, you know, there's a logic to that. The financial system is supposed to guide investment towards profitable um, investments. Uh, so, so if you have some guys like the IMF to come in and say nobody ever defaults ever, no matter what happens, um, no matter how stupid the investment. Well, you know, what's to stop? You know, be from just walking into the bank and saying, like, you know, I got a hot tip on the horses. Can I have $12 million? And, you know, they'll say, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> since, after all, if you don't win on the horses, I can just sell your sister into slavery or, you know, take your organs or something. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so which is the equivalent of what was basically imposed on the third world. Um, all right. So, so, you know, I went into all this, and, you know, that was fine. But... Uh, Afterwards, I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, this is a really nice person. She's socially conscious. She's an activist. Um, what other circumstance would a person like that hear a story involving the death of 5,000 babies and try to justify it? <laughs> you know, something was terribly wrong here. And what is it about the moral power of death that makes people say, uh, you know, makes people say things like that? It really haunted me, you know, surely you must pay your debts. Because, you know, you, you, something like that is like, you know, five or six words, and the response of why this is insane takes half an hour, well, ten minutes. Um, you know, and how did that happen? Why do people think that? Um, why does that one kind of morality seem to trump any other? And that's what really set me off, and, well, we've got to get to the bottom of this if we're going to get anywhere. Because debt is everywhere. I mean, as soon as I started thinking about it, so I realized that almost all political campaigns I've been involved with had to do with debt in some way or another. And um, almost everything has to do with debt nowadays. I mean, modern nation state runs on deficit financing, consumer economies run on debt, international relations are all about debt. Yet, it's not even clear what debt is. And, and, and no one's ever written a book, a history of it. And that was really shocking because I thought about it and I thought, well, how many things are there that nobody has ever written a history of? Surprisingly few, you know? I mean, <laughs> you can get a history of salt, a history of cod. You know, there's a French guy who wrote a history of shit. You know, it's a human waste disposal through the ages. It's actually called that. Um, <laughs> and um, oh, nobody's written a history of debt. I mean, people have written histories of money. 
But histories of money actually don't even turn, turn out to be histories of money. Almost invariably, they turn out to be histories of coinage. But one thing I discovered when researching this book is that the vast majority of transactions, monetary transactions in history, haven't used coinage. They've, they've been credit transactions. Um, but I guess, you know, coinage, you can dig them up, and credit transactions, you really can't. Um, you can sometimes see credit history, histories of credit, but it's not exactly the same. Um, so I started researching the book, and the, one of the first things I discovered was that moral ambivalence uh, that I saw, you know, that, that immediate reaction of surely one must pay one's debts, and, and then the conversation, well, but no, you don't. I mean, why do you think that? That's silly. Um, that conversation has been going on for 5,000 years. Uh, over and over and over again, you find well, on the most superficial level, you could say, you know, there's two things that you see in almost all times and places where money exists. Um, one is the tendency to reduce all moral obligations to debts. To talk about morality is simply a matter of paying your debts. That's all morality is. Um, the other is the assumption that people who lend money are evil. Which, if you think about it, is kind of hard to square, right? Um, and on a more on a deeper level, you see that like over and over again, great works of religion, religious thought, great works of philosophy, when they talk about morality and justice, they almost invariably, you know, they start like that. They say, okay, well, what is, what is morality? Morality is just debt. Um, and then they say, no, actually it isn't, is it? Um, I mean, Plato's Republic is the most obvious example, right? Um, most of us, I, I, I imagine are familiar with this at some, from some point in our lives. You know, the book starts with the question, what is justice? And there's this rich arms manufacturer, whose name actually means capital, kephalos, um, who says, oh, simple. I mean, justice is just a matter of paying your debts and maybe not lying. Um, and Socrates blows that one out of the water immediately, right? Um, he says, oh, that's, that's, that doesn't work. I mean, um, like say somebody lends me his sword. I'm sorry. Uh, say somebody lends me his sword and then he goes violently insane and wants it back to kill people. Um, obviously I'm not going to give it back. That wouldn't be just and I'll probably make up some lies to why I can't. Um, and he says, oh, well, okay, not that, something else then. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't care. I've got to go to some ritual. And, um, <laughs> and um, so they take it up, and his son takes it up, and everybody else takes it up. And the rest of the book is, is you know, if not that, then what? But it always starts with that. You know, I mean, that, you see that pattern over and over again. Um, the next, I, I, I notice the same thing in the Brahmanas. Um, the Rig Veda has all these metaphors about debt, and they try to systematize it. And this is our first real theological works of tradition, which has come to be known as Hinduism. Um, the Brahmanas, um, they actually pose, start by posing all moral obligations as debts in a similar way, but only in such a way as to show it's absurd. Um, so they say, what is life? Life is a debt you owe to the gods. Um, you pay the interest with animal sacrifice, and then when you die, you're paying the principal. Um, then they say, well, you, you, know, you owe other debts as well. Everybody's born with a debt to your parents. How do you pay your debt to your parents? You become a parent. Um, you owe a debt to the sages who created wisdom. How do you pay them? You, you learn, you study, you become a sage. Um, you owe a debt to humanity. Um, 
uh, for making life possible and all those things that make your life and existence good. Uh, how do you pay humanity? Well, you are hospitable to strangers. Um, and if you look at the examples they use, it quickly becomes obvious that they're not really talking about debts in any recognizable sense at all, right? Um, because, you know, you pay your debt to your parents by, by becoming a parent. Well, you know, you don't actually pay your debt to somebody who lends you money by giving money to someone else. Um, you know, what they're actually saying is you, you become the thing which you owed. Um, you erase the difference. And the same thing with the sages, and, you know, you pay your debt to humanity by becoming humane. Um, so how does that apply to the gods? Well, the gods represent the cosmos. And if you think about it, what is a debt? A debt is a... It's, it's a relation between two equals where they make an agreement. Um, you know, somebody lends somebody something else, somebody pays somebody something else. Um, but it's a business transaction. But uh, business transactions, which are you know, sort of by definition between two legally equivalent entities. So I'm doing a business deal with the cosmos, with everything that ever existed or ever will, including myself. Um, how would I have a come to a deal with the cosmos. <laughs> you know, the very idea is absurd and what you're really recognizing in a ritual when you think about it is that you are one with the cosmos and, you know, the debt doesn't exist. So the way of paying back the debt is realizing there isn't one. Um, in a similar way, um, the Old Testament, in, in both Sanskrit and Aramaic, the word for sin, guilt, and debt are actually the same. Uh, so, for example, the Lord's Prayer, I was like, pull this one out. You know, we all know the Anglican translation, um, forgive us our trespasses just as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, that was um, in the 1600s they came up with that one. The original translation was by John Whitecliffe, which was a literal translation from the Aramaic, which is actually Greek, which is you know, taken from the Aramaic. But they all say the same thing, which is forgive us our debts just as we forgive those who owe us money. But of course, there's a trick there, right? <laughs> we don't actually forgive those who owe us money, not usually. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a way of saying that you're a sinner. <laughs> you don't deserve to be forgiven at all, but God will do it anyway, because there is redemption, which is, of course, a financial term. Um, so is reckoning. Um, actually, almost all the language of sin is, is taken from the language of Bronze Age finance. Um, but they had the custom at that time of periodically canceling debts, uh, which is the act of sacred kings, and then it becomes institutionalized in Jubilees. So the sacred, you know, what is sacred is not paying debts, what's sacred is forgiving debts. So it's the same thing. They start with debt as morality, and then they say, well, no, actually, it's not. You know, it's it's a canceling debts, which is morality. So then you have to ask the question, well, if none of them believe that debt is morality, why do they all have to start by saying it is? You know, why are they caught with this morality that they don't actually believe in? And the best I could come up with is, well, I started thinking like, all right, they're using the language of the time. Um, what were people arguing about if you're, you know, it's 800 BC and you're in a tavern in, in Mesopotamia arguing about politics? We don't know, um, but you know, chances are the, there were all sorts of political slogans of the time, and almost certainly all these religious texts are referring to them, using them, using that language. You know, so we're reading it now. We have no idea, right? So we're probably reading the Bronze Age equivalent of like it's the economy, stupid, or some phrase like that, and just not recognizing. It's like what an interesting turn of phrase they're using these religious texts. Uh, but you know, so 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 presume we debt was all over the place as as, as something to argue about. Um, 
And in fact, it, it was because, and this is the reason why words debt, guilt, and sin become the same words, because it was the language of politics. Benjamin Franklin made the famous line that, you know, there's nothing certain but death and taxes, but it's, this is not actually true. Um, it's just death. Um, <laughs> in, in the ancient world, often, you know, people didn't have to pay taxes. Uh, Sumerian you know, conquered people had to pay taxes. Taxes were tribute. Um, in ancient Athens, they actually got money from the government. People were paid to vote. Did you know that? I, I thought this was great. It's my two great discoveries about ancient Athens um, um, that, that most people don't know because it just, like, disturbs us too much. One was that everybody was paid to go to the Agora. Um, the other was that Athenian women had to wear veils. But completely messes up all our conceptions of everything. Um, but, um, all right, so, 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 before I get to that. Um, so people didn't really have to pay taxes. Uh, conquered people did. But, you know, what basically conquering armies discovered, and, and pretty much, you know, mafiosi understand this, that, you know, debt is the if you have a relation of violent inequality and you want to make it seem moral, debt is the perfect language. It's the best technique ever developed to do this. And not only does it make it seem moral, it makes it seem like the moral reprobate is the victim. Um, so, you know, imagine the scenario you've just conquered someone and you announce, all right, um, you all owe me your lives because I could have killed you and I didn't. Um, I will expect payment for these lives you owe me. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm going to let you off the hook for the first six months. And after that, terms are negotiable if you're really in trouble. But I really do expect you to you know, uh, come through on this. And suddenly, you know, the victims are all scurrying around feeling bad about themselves. And, you know, you get to be the nice guy. Um, so it's great from your point of view. Um, on the other hand, it has a tendency to blow up because there's that problem of equality again. A debt is a relationship ostensibly between equals. You could um, equal it up. And it tends to really annoy people. So, I mean, it works, but when it blows up, it blows up in a big way. The famous classicist Moses Finley had this famous line that, um, you know, there's basically one revolutionary program in all of antiquity, which is cancel the debts and redistribute the land. Which is interesting because it shows two things. It shows that everybody was in debt, um, which is fascinating in itself. Think about it, right? Like most people who've ever lived have been in debt. To whom? I mean, how'd that happen? Like, what did those guys do that was so great that everybody was in debt to them? Um, but, so, you know, clearly it's an imposed um, technique of rule. Um, so all insurrections seem to be about debt. Well, I mean, 90%. Much more so than slavery or caste or serfdom or all the things you'd think people would be upset about. In a way, it makes a certain sense, right? Because, oh, incidentally, it's, it, this remains true. Like, con until relatively recent times, I was just going through some um, of the writings of people like John Adams and why he hated democracy. Um, because, you know, the founding fathers were all totally against democracy. Um, and, and at one point, he's discussing why we can't have majority vote, and he just spells it out, you know, totally. Um, up. Adams is more upfront about it than most of them. And he says, well, we can't have majority vote because we have nine million people in this country of property and two million who don't have. Um, you know, the moment we had majority vote, what's going to happen? The first thing they'll do is they'll cancel the debts. After that, they'll redistribute the land. Um, so it's the same thing, you know. <laughs> this is, um, so... so why are insurrections about debt? Well, it seems to be, I think this is the most 
sensible explanation is because of that assumption of equality. I mean, you, you know, it's one thing to say you are inferior. Nobody's going to like that very much. But it's another thing to say, well, you know, you should be my equal, but you fucked up. You know, you're completely inadequate. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. And, um, you know, it's very easy to get indignant about that. Um, and, and that when you're indignant, what do you say? You start saying, well, wait a minute, who, who, who owes what to who here, you know? I owe you, what do I owe you? What did you ever do? I mean, I, I'm the guy who makes the food around here, you owe me. Uh, so, so the moment you actually start saying things like that, um, what are you done? You've turned debt into morality, right? You're actually using the language of debt and universalizing it, you're using the master's language, and, and thus, you know, the only way you can argue of power is to use this language of debt. Thus, you see people when they try to like think in more broad, profound, you know, reflexive ways. So starting with debt, because that's the language you've got to use, and then saying yes, of course, except not really. It doesn't really work at all that way. Okay, so that's one start. And there's there's another sense I think comes from commercial relations. As soon as you start imagining everything we do, at, all our relations with one another as exchange. It's a more subtle argument, um, but I should, I should mention it quickly. Um, one of the arguments in my book is that we have a tendency, especially in com you know, commercial economies, to start thinking of everything we do as exchange, and all morality is exchange, reciprocity is the basic moral principle, so forth and so on. This is not true. In fact, there's always multiple different types of moral um, principles at play, including that can govern transactions involving moving transferring material goods, uh, but, you know, we can have communistic relations which are sort of ongoing, you don't need to keep count because you're just, people will always be there for you. Um, so you can have hierarchical relations which are also similarly permanent, but instead of being governed by reciprocity, if you give something to a superior, they'll expect you to do it again. Um, and then you have relations of exchange, and exchange is not between people who are ostensibly equal, um, formally equal, but have no necessary ongoing relationship. So, you know, I swap something with you, you give something to me, we walk away. So we only have ongoing relations if somebody hasn't paid up. Which is interesting, because it implies that in so if you, the moment you start imagining everything as exchange, then the only reason people have to have relationships with each other is if a transaction has not been completed. But that means somebody actually didn't do something they really ought to have done. In fact, it's quite likely that both parties did, you know. Um, there's actually this great story I found in a um, medieval Buddhist monk from Japan. Uh, has this book about strange and extraordinary occurrences in Japan in my day. Um, and my, my, one of them that really struck me was a story of premature reincarnation. Um, about this loan shark. <laughs> the woman, she's a wife of the governor. She was like constantly like lending money at high interest um, and making people's lives a living hell. People would flee the province, um, go into hiding when her goons came to find them. Um, and as a result, um, when she died, Buddhism is interesting because unlike Christianity and Islam, they're, they're not against taking interest in principle. Um, but um, anything can be done too much. Uh, so, so he's telling the story when she died, um, after two days they're saying prayers over the coffin, suddenly the coffin opens and she springs to life but she's half ox. It's a horrible twisted monster and it's hard to, they don't eat grass and, and they don't know what to do and like they try giving all the money back quickly, oh get this over with and hopefully she'll just die. She does eventually. Um, but um, 
the monk is discussing this and he says, well, you know, there is a sutra that says, well, if you owe somebody money and you die, you're in mortal peril because, you know, you might well be reborn an ox in the barn of the guy you owe money to. However, obviously, as a case like this shows, uh, it can go the other way. You know, if, if you're too mean about taking back the money and harassing people about giving money, then you could get reborn an ox in their barn. In fact, she, I guess she owed so many different, I mean, she'd done this to so many different people, she just sort of became an ox, you know, in general. Uh, and, um, and I thought about this, and I thought, well, yeah, it's a perfect illustration of that kind of moral ambivalence, right? Because, well, obviously you're not shaking somebody down unless they have, you know, not paid you the money they owe you. So, you know, they're already in mortal peril of being reborn in ox in your barn, and then suddenly you're shaking them down, you're in mortal peril of being... You can't both be reborn in ox in each other's barn, right? Somebody's got to be worse. So who decides, right? Is there some sort of karmic scale of just how, how bad a deadbeat you have to be versus just how mean a creditor you have to be to figure out who gets to be an ox. Um, so, so, in fact, that problem shows up over and over again. You know, when you imagine everything is exchange, uh, everything's a debt, and, um, you know, life is sin, social relations themselves become sort of problematic, and this is, in fact, in, you know, commercial economies that religions often do come to this conclusion. I mean, it doesn't have to, like, there's other circumstances where debt is good, um, at least for people who aren't too close or too far away. It's sort of the right way for people to deal with each other. It's another famous story that um, I really like um, about uh, Anthropologist named Laura Bohannon went to do field work among people called the Tiv in central Nigeria. And, you know, she was clueless. She didn't know what to do. Um, she showed up in the house and people kind of came with baskets of food uh, and dropped them. You know, here's some okra. I want some eggs, fish, you know. And she didn't know what, to, you know, what this meant, so she would just, like, write them in a little notebook. So. Anthropo what anthropologists do. Um, and um, eventually some people, neighbors, took pity on her and they came to explain what was going on. They said, look, look, you do have to reciprocate. You're expected to give that back or something of equivalent value. But you got to make sure not to give them something of exactly the same value, right? Uh, because, you know, say they give you some okra worth three shillings. Well, give them something worth two shillings or give them something worth four shillings. Uh, preferably not okra. That's too obvious. But, you know, something, you know, um, <laughs> everybody knows the price, you know. Um, but because if you give them something worth exactly the same value of what they gave you, that's like saying, like, you had a hell of you. I don't want to. I don't want to see you anymore. Um, you want to make sure there's a little bit of debt between everybody, because then we all have an excuse to come visit and drop stuff off and hang out and get the gossip. And you know that's neighborhood, that's community. Um, so a little bit of debt can be good. Um, of course, that all depends on the existence of money. Um, of course, money becomes the critical thing here, and and the morality of debt really turns on the existence of money. Because what is a debt? A debt is is a it's basically a promise which you can quantify. Um, a debt is just a type of promise, um, but it is a promise which can become impersonal owing to the fact that it can be mathematical, and um, and and thus transferable, right? Uh, so you can take a debt and transfer it to someone else, which you can't do with most types of promise. Somebody promises to love you forever or something like that. You can't actually give that to someone else. Um, but, or even if they promise to meet you at three. Uh, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, a debt you can. Um, all right, so um, this raises the question of what is money. And, and, and I started thinking about that. Um, and I discovered something really interesting, which is that economists don't know. 
there's no consensus among economists as to what money is, which is, is quite remarkable because you'd think if there's anything they would kind of have a handle on by now, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be money, but now um, there's, they, they argue about it all the time. I mean, um, there's kind of three principles they throw out, but they don't know which one comes first or how it starts or which is um, the central one. Um, you know, is it a medium of exchange? Is it a measure of value? Is it a store of value? Um, the predominant view, mainstream economists assume, we say it's, a, it's currency comes first, it's a medium of exchange, and then becomes a way of measuring the value of other things. Um, but there's, a, there's another view, it's often associated with what's called chartalism, which says, no, it's the other way around. Um, money actually is debt, it's, an, it's, a, way of, it's a way of accounting for comparing debts. Um, so it's really a means of account, and only later does it start circulating around. Um, that's a secondary function. Um, they're considered a little bit crazy by a lot of, or sort of marginal wing nutty type people, uh, by by many mainstream economists. But there's a pro it never goes away because archaeologists, historians tend to support their position because all historical evidence that exists implies that they are correct. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a quandary here, and and as an anthropologist, this is a particularly you know, it's kind of a pet peeve, I must admit this. Um, one reason why anthropologists really find economists annoying, there's this kind of opposition that's existed for at least a hundred years, um, is this, we call it the myth of barter. Basically there's a standard story that everybody learns about the origins of money. I mean, you've all heard it, right? Uh, a million times, I'm sure. Once upon a time, people used to, you know, they didn't have money, so what did they have to do? Well, we had to, they had to swap things, right? Uh, so you have a cow, I need a cow. I say, um, tell you what, I'll give you 30 chickens for that cow. And, you know, now uh, 40, 45. You, know. you, you negotiate, come to a deal. Um, he swap. Um, problem has, sometimes he doesn't want my chicken. Sometimes he doesn't want anything I happen to have. Um, what do you do? Well, you, no deal. You have to go home. Um, eventually, you know, it becomes so annoying, d you decide you, you have to invent money. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it happens naturally. People stockpile things they think people will want on an irregular basis, which for some reason tends to be shiny pieces of metal. Um, and, um, and and that there's a virtuous circle. Everybody wants it because everybody wants it. Eventually, it turns into money. The government gets in on the operation mainly to validate the the quality and weight of the money. And then the government, of course, being bad and um, all the economic versions cheats and debases the currency. Um, eventually, people come up with credit. Um, so you get barter, you get money, you get credit. Um, securitized derivatives are simply the sort of last link of this inevitable chain, right? Um, it all makes sense. There's one big problem. And this story was actually first really proposed by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations in 1776. And you know, to Adam Smith's credit, he didn't know. He was just guessing, right? He just thought this must be how it must have worked. Um, they didn't really have a lot of ethnographic information at their disposal in Scottish libraries in 1776. So I would let Adam Smith off the hook on this one. But some of these other guys, I don't know what their deal is. Because, I mean, we've gone out into the world for, for 200 years trying to find any place in the world where, you know, ordinary everyday transactions take the form of I'll give you 30 chickens for that cow. They do not exist. <laughs> I mean, like, you, you find thousands of different interesting variations, of, you know, ways of distributing goods and services in places where they don't have money. I'm incredibly creative ones, just never that one. <laughs> um, 
you know, for example, Adam Smith's big example was, um, you know, when he did get concrete, he'd usually say, well, Siberian nomads are Native Americans. Um, Northeast Woodlands, Algonquians, and Iroquoian speakers, you know, they're swapping arrowheads for beaver pelts and stuff like that. Um, when people actually did go out and, and, and start writing books about how people in such societies did actually distribute things, well, what they found out was this was like completely crazy. Um, uh, for example, one of the major ways of distributing goods and services was through dreams, because they actually had this theory that um, dreams are, 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 are suppressed desires that we are not consciously aware of and can only be realized by being interpreted through a coded language. I mean, basically, Blair Queens had invented Freudianism in, 16, in the 1600s. Um, so you had to like guess people's dreams. And basically, what people actually did has no relation to, to, to what the economists thought would be going on. Um, Iroquoian, most goods and services when they weren't doing dream guessing um, was uh, done through women's councils, which um, you know allocated stuff um, it, uh, in a democratic fashion. So, you, you know, if you're a guy and you actually want to be repelled, you go to you, your wife and she talks to the women's council. And, um, you know, Friedrich Engels got very excited when he learned this, um, but you know, economists just completely ignored it. You know, they just kept on with the story about the people swapping things. Um, it remains in textbooks to this day, which is, um, again, um, odd, uh, because, I mean, I actually pulled 20 economic textbooks, like all the biggest and fattest of them. There's a really large textbooks on, on the shelf there at Goldsmith, so I thought, all right, let's go to the section on money and see what they say, like how they handle this problem that nobody's ever actually found a place where they do barter. And sure enough, you know, the really early ones are still saying, well, primitive societies will do barter. But the new ones, um, they come up with a new, a new approach. They say, Imagine you lived in a society without money. What would you have to do? <laughs> Say you were trying to get like a breakfast, orange juice, and potato, you know, and and and, and eggs with, with no money. You'd have to swap something, wouldn't you? You know, so the, um, so they they do it as a, a thought experiment, but they still tell the story. They have to feel they have to tell the story. Um, all right. So the first thing that. I realized when I thought about this is, well, I mean, you do find occasions where people will do barter. I mean, it's not like unprecedented in human history. It's just neighbors will never do it with each other. You'll, it happens between strangers. So it's really hard to imagine how a money system is going to emerge from occasional relations between strangers. Because if you have systematic relations, then you get fixed equivalences. Um, and basically, basically the, the economic thing doesn't work. Um, but it's really obvious why neighbors aren't going to do this. And, and it's really obvious what's going on is they're trying to make up a story which completely eliminates the possibility of credit and debt. Because they're assuming that neighbors in a Neolithic village are going to be engaging with each other only in what economists call the spot trade. Um, you know, I'll give you this, you give me that, we walk away. Well, why? That's, that's ridiculous, right? Because, you know, say I say, give you, I'll give you 30 chickens for that cow and he doesn't want my chickens. I'm his neighbor. I mean, I'm going to have something he wants eventually and it's good to have neighbors in your dad. Um, so, in fact, what actually can be observed to happen, actually it's a custom in many times and places that um, if you just praise something belonging to another person, they kind of have to give it to you. Um, a great story about this, a Maori story about this guy who took advantage of this and he would just walk up and down the beach and every time a fisherman came home he'd say, wow, that's a beautiful squid, you know, I, I love squid. Um, the guy would be like, right, here's a squid, you know. <laughs> um, he just do this all the time. Wow, you know, that's a whitefish, that's a good one, yeah, it's a very nice whitefish. Um, so, you know, after about two years of doing this all the time, they formed a war party and killed him. 
<laughs> because it's actually easier to smash someone's head in than to say, no, I'm not going to give you the squid this time. <laughs> All right, so you have to give it to them. Um, and and um, so, so, you know, what would you actually do? You walk up to the guy, you say, Wow, what a magnificent cow. That's a beautiful cow. And the guy's saying, oh, you want a cow? You like it? Oh, it's really not much, but take my cow, please. You know, oh, you're a friend. I love you. You know, just take it away. Don't even think about giving me anything back. But of course, now we all know, like, you owe him one, right? Um, and, and what do you owe him? Something roughly like a cow. Um, often there are ranked systems. Um, you know, a cow is sort of like a canoe and sort of like a necklace, a jade necklace, but, you know, neck chicken's more like a pearl necklace or, you know, a hammer. You know, so there's sort of rough things that are sort of like other things that you could, you know. Um, but money, how is money going to grow out of that? It doesn't make any, there's no obvious way that it would come out of that. Barter system, they come up with all these mathematical formulas of how it could produce money, except barter doesn't happen, so that wouldn't happen. Um, so where do you get money from, from a system like that? Because money is a system of exact proportionality, right? Um, 27 of these equals 3 of these. Well, you know, sometimes somebody is cheap, you know, you, uh, they owe you something like a cow, and they'll like, before you can ask for something else, and you can ask for anything, right? You know, oh, um, you know, that's a beautiful necklace you have, or have I mentioned that my son is deeply in love with your daughter? You know, there's a million things. Or you could just leave it and like, because it's nice to have a guy in your dad and makes them uncomfortable. Um, and um, but um, you know, sometimes they might try to head you off and say, "Oh, by the way, I just found this um, old you know canoe here. You take that." And you know, it's like not, obviously not the equivalent of a cow. And if so, you might mock him as a cheapskate, right? Um, but you're unlikely to come up with a mathematical formula for exactly how cheap you think he was. So when are you going to start quantifying like this? Well, the answer seems to be when, when violence ensues, uh, when people are very angry. That's when they get exact. And w so, you know, say you're mocking him as a cheapskate, everybody's drunk, swords are pulled out, somebody's ear gets cut off. Well, you know, often it will be the case that they'll have very specific, you know, penalties, uh, even in places where you don't have markets, uh, for, you know, one eye is worth 27 heifers, a year is worth 17, you know, this part of the finger, that part of the finger. Um, you know, they'll be very, very specific. And, and that's exactly the circumstance when you're not going to be sort of easygoing about the thing, right? I mean, it's like 27 heifers or this means war, you know, feud will result. Um, and if you don't have heifers, well, then you do have a problem, don't you? Um, you have to substitute something else. And in fact, often uh, early legal codes, even medieval ones, have incredibly detailed breakdowns of how to do this. Um, there's these early Irish and Welsh law codes. There was insults were actually the big thing. Everybody at an honor price, um, which is like how, you know, what people have to pay if they insult you. Uh, and it varies by your social status, but also you can get demoted or uh, by behavior. So like kings are worth 24 cows, which doesn't seem like much, but they're actually like uh, hundreds of kings in ancient Ireland. Um, but you know, if you run away in battle, you can get demoted and only be worth 12. Um, so forth and so on. Uh, you can lose your honor price entirely if you do something really bad. Uh, and people are free to insult you. But, um, so even if they kill you, you know, it's like six cows for killing you and 12 cows for insulting you by killing you. Um, 
But, you know, um, they'd have a breakdown of what you can substitute because you don't necessarily have 12 cows. Uh, so, so they would actually have, like, everything in a house, like, from the rafters to the cauldron to the silverware, what it's worth in exact quantitative terms for figuring out how to pay fines. Even though none of those items were available for sale in markets, we didn't really have markets at that point in, in Celtic, um, on the Celtic fringe there. Um, Okay, so, so, so it's in these circumstances of violence you start quantifying that money seems to emerge. Uh, credit systems gradually from various things like this money emerges as a sort of system of account, not so much as currency. Um, and this is like I think the great discovery, um, the single greatest discovery I made in, in researching this book, it really surprised me, is that there's a pattern, actually. Um, well, first of all, you know, the sort of standard line, okay, first there was, first there was barter, then there was money, then there was uh, credit. Well, that's actually, not only is it wrong, it's actually backwards. Um, first there's credit, uh, then you get co coinage, it's invented much later, 2,000 years later. Um, and um, when you do get barter, you know, people saying, I'll give you 20 chickens for that cow, it's usually where there used to be money, but somehow the source of money dries up. So people are trying to do the same thing without the money. So, you know, in Russia in the 1990s, or prisons, that's another famous example, you know. Everybody grew up using money, but now they don't have any, so it's like using cigarettes and things like that. Um, all right, so you start with credit, and for 2,000 years, actually, it seems that people were operating, there's a fixed equivalent in, in Mesopotamia in silver and grain, and that basically functions as money, but they're not actually using the silver. I mean, occasionally merchants would actually turn over the silver, but for the most part, um, they are, um, they appear to be basically putting stuff on the tab uh, with your local merchant. And then every six months to a year you pay off and whatever he's willing to accept of, the, of that equivalent value in silver. Um, so they didn't even actually make scales accurate enough to like measure out the tiny bits of silver that would have been required to you know, buy a shirt or a hammer or something like that. Um, but people were buying those things. Okay, so markets, you know, they, they come about as a side effect of these legal codes, administrative systems of temples where they have to allocate stuff. Um, who have um, the principle of interest is invented around this time. And Michael Hudson, actually, economist, likes to make the argument that one of the great problems of all subsequent history has been that when they invented the principle of, of charging interest on loans, they also had the principle of periodic cancellation. And they kind of exported half of that. <laughs> and, you know, we've been suffering ever since. Because what would happen is, you know, w since money is, is an IOU, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a credit arrangement primarily, um, you know, what's to stop it from going crazy? Well, occasionally it would. You'd have these debt crises. And throughout human history, these debt crises are sort of the worst case scenario. Um, Hammurabi or, you know, a Confucian scholar, okay, uh, is trying to imagine, like, the worst thing that can happen. Um, Aristotle, you know, usually this, the ideas of the debt trap. People, more and more of the population fall into debt. They're selling off their flocks and fields, or they're getting them repossessed. Gradually, their children are taken off into debt peonage. Um, sometimes they have to sell themselves into slavery to stop that from happening. So governments will intervene and cancel everything. Clean slate. Um, However, around 600 AD, suddenly they invent coinage. Coinage is invented to pay soldiers. Um, it, on, it appears almost simultaneously in India, China, and the Eastern Aegean uh, to pay mercenaries or conscripts. Usually when it's mercenaries, it's gold and silver, where it's conscripts, it's just bronze. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, uh, it's always used 
as a side effect of military operations, which makes sense because, you know, soldiers are the last people you're going to want to um, extend credit to anyway. Uh, if you're emergent, you know, they're heavily armed, they're just passing through. And, um, and they tend to have a lot of little bits of gold and silver because they've been looting and pillaging, right? Um, so you just systematize that. Taxes are basically ways of set it, governments use to set up markets. So they demand taxes and money uh, and then give the money to the soldiers. So basically you're just employing your entire population, which now has to give you those coins back again, um, to get stuff to soldiers. So that's, that's basically how it works. So throughout history, markets crop up around military operations and particularly cash markets. But they're also used to get slaves because the soldiers go out and they get slaves, put slaves to work in the mines, getting more money so you can use, give that to the soldiers. It's this whole kind of horrible circle. Um, in these periods you still have debt revolts but the usual solution is not to cancel the debts because now you suddenly think money actually is a thing. Uh, people are actually using cash in everyday transactions, especially any place where there's a military base nearby. Um, so um, they do another technique, they just kind of throw money at the problem. Um, so they have all these sort of Romans or bread and circuses or Athens paying people to go to the, to go to jury duty or to the Agora, you know, to keep, to prevent debt crises and social um, crisis from happening. Um, also, you get the rise of world religions, which interestingly almost invariably start as anti-war movements against these new militaristic cash-paying um, armies. Um, in the Middle Ages, suddenly the armies fall apart. There's kind of, in every case, in India and China and in Europe, there's a last ditch effort to like, the, uh, the empire tries to like adopt one of these religions which really start as anti-imperial, anti-war movements uh, to save itself. It doesn't usually work. Um, but the empires collapse, the standing armies dissolve, you go back to virtual credit money. Uh, so what you find in the Middle Ages is like they're using checks in, in the Middle East. Czech is an Arabic word, meaning Czech. Um, <laughs> and um, um, they're using paper money in China, which starts as credit instruments and the state adopts it. Um, they're using tally sticks and imaginary money in Europe. They have this crazy system where uh, they're still using Roman and then Carolingian money, even though it doesn't physically exist, to make the calculations. And then they're using things like tally sticks to notch sticks, and they break them in half. And one half is called the stock, and one is called the stub. That's actually where those words come from, um, to keep track of who knows what to who. Um, but in the meantime, the world religions sort of take over and they impose various rules to make sure that people don't fall into debt traps uh, and protect uh, debtors against creditors. So you get anti-usury laws or start doing debt cancellation again in China, so forth and so on. Um, Slavery largely disappears, one of the great social victories um, of human history that we never talk about. And, and actually, the Middle Ages look kind of good in retrospect. Um, until around 1450, it all starts going backwards, much sped up by the discovery of the Americas and all that cash, gold and silver flowing in. You go back to gold and silver, you go back to standing armies, slavery comes back. Um, large empires, and um, that's the period we're coming out of now. <laughs> 1971, uh, Nixon goes off the gold standard and we're really, we're 30 years in, right? So we're, it's hardly yet begun and everybody thinks, oh, you know, it's all made possible by computers. We're entering this age of virtual money. It's unprecedented. No, it's not. Um, it's actually, this is actually the original form of money. And um, the interesting thing is, is, is um, we, we seem to have gone about it completely backwards in historical terms. Because what usually happens when money is an IOU, it's, it's a virtual political arrangement, um, uh, is once you understand that, as people are well aware in the Middle Ages, for example, um, 
Well, you have to set up some mechanism to protect debtors from creditors. If the whole thing goes crazy, everybody you know, falls into debt traps which they are doing now, right? Uh, and why? Because we did the opposite. We, we created things like the IMF, which protect creditors against debtors. <laughs> Completely backwards from what, what everybody else has done in, when this happens in other periods of human history. Uh, and sure enough, we are, if Aristotle were here today and he was you know, looking at America, you know, he would probably think that the distinction between being so deeply indebted that you are, you know, selling yourself to work for others and being so deeply indebted that you are renting yourself to work for others is you know, sort of a legalistic distinction at best. Um, so, you know, we're, we're there. We're in this uh, great, uh, great social crisis that people throughout human history were most afraid of. But, you know, I end on an optimistic note because, um, well, you know, 500 year cycles we're talking here, right? 30 years is, 40 years is nothing. Uh, we still have plenty of time to get it right. And I think that, you know, the social movements that we're seeing cropping up around debt issues since 2008, you know, in 2008, they kind of let the cat out of the bag. You don't really have to pay your debts at all, do you? Um, I mean, if not if you're AIG, right? Uh, they can wave these various magic wands and, and make trillions of dollars of debt disappear if it's somebody that actually matters to them. Um, so, now that we know that, I think what people are saying effectively is like, okay, now that we understand that money is a social construct, it's, it's a political arrangement, well, you know, if democracy is to mean anything, it means that, you know, we all got to be in on the discussion and the decision making of like who makes promises to who, what promises are kept, and when circumstances change, what promises are renegotiated, which is what always happens when circumstances change. Um, the big guys can do it, you know. As a, if democracy is to have meaning, it has to be uh, applied to everyone else. We need to sort of accept that we are in a, a, a phase of money that has radically different political implications. And, uh, you know, it's not less the rich can live in this new world of virtual money and we're still living in the Bronze Age. Um, so I end with a call for a jubilee. <laughs> um, it's not really a policy prescription so much as it's just trying to throw out a bomb. But but um, but although actually you know Saudi Arabia did it. Most people don't know this. That was their response to the Arab Spring. They like doubled security spending and then they canceled all debts. So it's possible. It's not like it can't happen. Um, they, they also don't want you to know this. Um, so it probably seems like part of the conditions for being allowed to do it is like not to tell. But uh, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so it's perfectly possible to do, even if you don't have a king, uh, which they do. But um, I think it would be useful, not only just because it would help so many people in very concrete ways, but it's a way of sort of, it's not just a clean slate economically, but it's a clean slate conceptually. You know, we need to have, figure out a mechanism that will shock everybody into the realization that things are not the way they've been represented. We're in a new world now, and we need to rethink our very most basic categories. And I think it would be practical, actually. The Boston Consulting Group, I'll just throw this out at the end, um, did a model. I didn't even know about this. Um, rumor has it it was partly inspired by my book, but I don't know if that's really true. Um, trying to figure out what would happen if they actually did do a jubilee. And they said um, it would cause severe economic disruption, but not doing it would cause even more. <laughs> so it might actually be a, you know, a policy prescription. <laughs> anyway, I think it would be a very good idea. <laughs> So I think uh, we've got a little bit of time left uh, for questions, maybe 10 minutes or so of, of questions from folks. Um, anybody with a burning question after, after that talk? 
Well, they're not paying their debts. I mean, it's happening. It's been been clear for at least six months that there's no way that there's not going to be a default. The question is how they're going to dress it up. I mean, the interesting thing there is like the military connection. I didn't have time to go into this, but you know, like modern money is basically circulating war debt, and and a lot of the Greek debt is military debt. They have the highest military spending uh, per capita of any place in Europe, and nobody's talking about that element. You know, there's a cycle where these German and French banks lend the money, and then they buy German and French weapons with it. And and, and my my solution, I have a perfectly good solution to the Greek debt crisis. I think, why don't they just repossess the battleships? You know, nobody talks about that. You know, why take it out of people's pensions, you know? Just take all their weapons away. <laughs> but, yeah, it shows something about our political discourse that this hasn't even been broached. <laughs> One, two, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> What do I think of the future of the Occupy movement is the question. Well, I mean, look, when, when we were trying to throw this thing together in, in August, um, you know, we, we were handed this with seven weeks, like, which is a no preparation time. Um, no money resources. Um, basically, I spent much of that time, my biggest worry was how to ensure that we didn't just get instantly beaten up, put in jet, you know, all these great kids who'd never really done actions before, um, you know, didn't get like instantly beaten up, put in jail, traumatized, and nobody even knew it happened. You know, like we had no idea this was going to take off like this. So, so I mean, obviously it happened so fast and became so big that like there's got to be a lull. I mean, this can keep, you know, if it kept growing at the rate it was growing, we'd have like world revolution and by now. Um, you know, so, so, so clearly, you know, um, there's going to be a, a moment of stepping back. And I think people are organizing now on the May Day uh, general strike. I think they decided, like, let's actually do something where we don't have seven weeks, where we have a little bit of time to actually plan. Um, so I, I think that was a good decision, and I, I'm, I'm very much optimistic about how that'll turn out. Yeah. We had someone back there, and then yeah, yeah, and then yeah, one, two, three. <laughs> well, me, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, there are people doing it. Um, the problem of doing a debt strike, it's very difficult because, you know, one thing that debt does is it sort of, it, it, it reinforces a, a alienation. There's this kind of shame element um, that makes it very difficult. You know, what pe people are working on foreclosure stuff, and some of there's been some very successful organizing around that. But the first thing you have to do is, like, you know, get people over the embarrassment because everybody thinks it's their fault somehow. Um, and, it's e and, and that's in a, you know, foreclosure, at least you can have a neighborhood where people are all foreclosed and get them to meet each other. And, uh, but it becomes much harder when you're dealing with something like student debt, where people don't. Oh, everybody's in the same situation, but they're, they don't talk to each other necessarily because they're working all the time to pay their debts. Um, I think, so it's, it's historically been very difficult to organize around debt. I think the most effective um, technique that I've heard of, there's these guys, Occupy Student Debt, who have the idea of a pledge. The idea is get everybody to sign a pledge saying once we have a million signatures, or whatever, I think it's a million, um, a million signatures on this document, we'll all start. Pay, uh, stop paying at once. Um, and even having that document, once you start getting near a million signatures, um, you know, I'm sure the other guys are going to start negotiating real fast. This is the idea. So you might not even have to do it. So what do we have? Um, wait, wait, we had two people on stack, but I don't remember who they were. Uh, yes. Mm -hmm.
and then yeah, yeah. several weeks seven weeks to put this together when we were handed this mm-hmm. People who showed up at a meeting, uh, there was an advertisement on August 2nd for a general assembly in, in Bowling Green, um, which was put out by, well, Adbusters had announced the idea of an Occupy Wall Street thing, and then we saw this thing, we didn't know who put it out for a general assembly. It turned out to be like these guys from an, uh, the Workers' World Party, uh, the guys that put out Answer, and, 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 and a bunch of other similar groups mostly um, had sort of hijacked the thing. And the first thing that happened was uh, the horizontals, the people who wanted to do this democratically kind of had to hijack the meeting back from them. Um, it's all kind of a long story. It was, it was very exciting at the time. <laughs> but um, you know, we started tapping on people's shoulders saying, hey, how about we break off and form a real assembly? And then they had to, you know. Anyway, uh, but I, I, I could tell the whole story. But basically what ended up happening is Adbusters had done no prep work. They'd just thrown out the idea. And once we'd sort of created a directly democratic you know, group that started doing it, um, we realized they'd already set a date, which was like not only was it seven weeks and the uh, only seven weeks later it's also a Saturday so you can't even like do you know if you wanted the people at Wall Street to even notice you were there you had to figure out a way to <laughs> stick there for two days so we were kind of like you know and they'd advertise it on the web to 90,000 people but hadn't done anything so that was the situation we were in that's why I said handed yeah. Yeah. the people who showed up at that meeting you want me to give you all their names I mean I was one of like 80 people at a meeting. <laughs> you want the names of all 80 people? I mean, <laughs> oh, you know, so it's been a lot of all. It's been in all the papers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you go to Harper's Vanity Fair. They've all. Uh, New Yorker now has a story about it. There's a picture of it you can get on Sean Carpesian's website. He has a picture of us all sitting there. Um, yeah, it's there. It's all the information's out there by now. And of course, when my new book comes out, the whole chapter. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm a student starting out playing the double major in economics and biology. Um, your comments on economics textbooks, I really kind of take to heart. Yeah. Earlier today, mm-hmm. I heard my guy with an economic advisor in the Bush administration, they're saying he's going to have a state. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious mm-hmm. about, it seems like such a hermetic field, and so it's a little bit more creative that seems to be from an anthropological point of view. Um, hmm. I've read that economists tend to be, to be uh, very, uh, they don't like the economists. that's true. If so, maybe that's why it's so close off. And hmm. also, is there any advice for someone who's a starting economics student other than like yeah, well, there's a lot of very interesting heterodox forms about economics. I mean, you know, the problem is there's a dominant mainstream which is dominant not because it actually can predict anything, but because it's politically, you know, correct if, uh, from a from a the point of view of the ruling class. Um, I mean, you know, think about the fact that everybody always points out, you know, just as like all, you know, before. Iraq, all the guys who like, you know, said Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction were considered respectable, and all the guys who said he didn't were considered wingnuts. And after they find out that he didn't, all those guys who said who were wrong are still respectable, and the guys who were right are still wingnuts. I mean, it's the same in economics. Like the guys who predicted the uh, the bubble, you know, are mostly still considered insane, even though they were right. Um, but there's a reason for that, which is you know the role of a public economists anyway isn't it like 
you know, be right. It's like to talk up the market. I mean, talking down the market is considered a, it's considered a sin. It's considered, you know, um, because your your role is performative. You're creating the thing you describe. I always think that economists and, and anthropologists are on opposite poles as disciplines because I think of it this way: like I'm an anthropologist and I describe a ritual. I come back ten years later and I discover they're using my book to do the ritual. Right? <laughs> it has happened, anthropologists, and we're really freaked out. It's like no, it's not the idea. Um, but you know, if we're an economist, that's not a problem at all. You know, I mean. Um, um, you know, they're, they're telling people how to behave, you know, um, and, and, and that's the ambiguity. It's a, is it a descriptive uh, discipline or is it a prescriptive discipline or where's the border? It's never clear. Um, so, so, you know, there are lots of very interesting branches of economics, like the modern money theory, you know, the, the post-Keynesians and the, you know, there's all, yeah, various interesting stuff going on. I mean, um, but um, they're necessarily going to be marginal because, you know, it's not accuracy. That, that I mean, the example I, I always give on this uh, uh, that really impresses me about economics is behavioral economics. Um, you know, because a lot of economic microeconomics is based on certain core assumptions about um, human behavior, which were never actually tested. They just assumed, right? Um, people will do X and Y and Z. Um, and, and, you know, it's finally occurred to a bunch of, of psychologists like, why don't we do an experiment and see if they're true? Uh, well, maybe 20, 30 years ago. And, um, you know, surprisingly enough, they discovered, like, actually about a third of them are right. But, and a third are kind of not exactly, and one third is totally wrong. Um, people don't do that at all. Now, you know, has this affected what economists say in any way? No, they just keep on saying the same thing because they don't have to. I mean, um, so it tells you something about the power. If you are the hegemonic, you know, master discipline that like everybody reads, you know, decides on policy has to read, you're not there to describe reality most accurately. You're there to sort of like map out an image of how people are actually ideally supposed to behave. It's almost a utopian discipline. Uh, we're going to wrap up. I'm going to, let's, we haven't had women actually ask. Oh, whoa, there we go. We have, oh. uh, okay. Right there, and then move on to signing. <laughs> 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 um, you don't have to do that. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm actually interested in what this gentleman was saying about this, this call for adbusters, and another call for, to go to Chicago. Um, oh, yeah. And what's interesting is I was on the phone with Chicago, mm. They didn't know <laughs> this was going to happen. So what do you do? I don't know who did that either. Do you know who did that? Well, Adler's call out to go to Chicago. Was that Kai Lassen did it? Or they didn't tell me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which person. It's just a uh -huh. good thing. And, and, and it was, it was, it's always been an interesting thing when these things pop up. Because I had, you know, I can disclose my identity, right? I had mm -hmm. registered to Occupy Exodus mm -hmm. months ahead of time once this came up. Because I knew... You know, this is the big thing, right? We're coming, and then all of a sudden there was this campaign, and, and here I had this website, this domain, and all of a sudden I was forced to use it. Um. <laughs> I didn't really know how to make websites, but I wonder, you know, what is your take on this idea that, um, you know, they, they put it out there, and if people respond, then it will be successful. But what kind of organizing does it take on the ground to respond to a call of such magnitude? Yeah, the the Chicago thing is weird. I haven't I haven't been I mean my problem is I have to write a book in like a matter of weeks, so I haven't really been able to follow the details of what's going on. I mean you have to bear in mind with adbusters, like it's not like 
you know, there are some Svengalis who can manipulate people. Do they put out like eight calls for actions over the years, seven of which completely flubbed and nobody did them. I mean, so like you know, they they do this all the time. This time people kind of took it up because it was the right moment, um, and they didn't have anything to do with the organizing. I mean, God. Um, which is too bad because you know we had like no money, um, but but nonetheless, um, uh, this thing and um, yeah, because people, my understanding is that people put out a call to do local actions all over the country on May Day, and then suddenly Adbusters is putting out this thing for a summit thing, and and I'm um, yeah, and I, I, I to be honest, I don't know m more because I have to figure this out when I get back to New York. I have some IWW friends who are very upset about this and wanted to get me to talk to them and like tell them to cut it out, um, <laughs> and. Um, uh, which I don't know. It's too late once you put out a call, and maybe I, you know, then like if you don't do it, it's, it's going to be embarrassing. I mean, you can't really put out an anti-call. Sorry, never mind. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I, I, I think that is what was exciting to me about the May first stuff was the local focus, and I, I think it would be really distracting. I mean, you can have you know something bigger in Chicago. I mean, people, but but you know, it would have been nice to have the Chicago action on a different day. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything we can do about it now. Can't you issue a whoops? Whoops. Me? I mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Let's see. I mean, I gotta, yeah, I gotta get in touch with all those guys and see what's going on. I mean, they're saying. I mean, it's it's, it's an interesting philosophical thing because because like a lot of people are saying, oh, well, summit hopping in general is bad. We're reverting them. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think like there is a place for big, you know, convergences. Um, you know, people get to actually meet each other. It's nice. Um, sort of an advertisement for the movement. But but you know, I think it's potentially complementary for to local organizing, but not on the same day. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. Um, yeah, I, I gotta figure out what's going on there. So I think we're gonna wrap things up now, actually, in terms of talking about coordinating action and stuff. We do have a sort of Occupy display here in the store. There's a space, any of you all who are involved, feel free to drop off flyers at any point in time. There's actually like a little take action envelope you can put in things if you're wanting to reach the broader community here. Please make use of that space. Um, if you would help me just thank David very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.